0: How have you experienced loss and grief of things both large and small? Welcome to episode 386 of The Recovery Show. This episode is brought to you by Donna, Adela, Katie, Leslie, Mary Beth, and Catherine. They use the donation button on our website. Thank you, Donna, Adela, Katie, Leslie, Mary Beth, and Catherine, for your generous contributions. I also want to thank everybody who contributed to this episode with their words, as you will hear. This episode is for all of you. We are friends of family members of alcoholics and addicts who have found a path to serenity and happiness. We who live or have lived with the seemingly hopeless problem of addiction understand as perhaps few others can. So much depends on our own attitudes, and we believe that changed attitudes can aid recovery. Before we begin, we would like to state that in this show, we represent ourselves rather than any 12-step program. During this show, we will share our own experiences. The opinions expressed here are strictly those of the person who gave them. Take what you like and leave the rest. We hope that you will find something in our sharing that speaks to your life. My name is Spencer. I am your host today. Joining me virtually are a bunch of people that you'll hear from later. Recently, I was asked if I would give a lead at an online Al-Anon meeting. I sent an email to my mailing list with the recording of the lead that I had given and asked people to respond, and so many of you did, (laughs) which I thank you for. But let's start with my lead. Thank you, Joe. Thank you for inviting me. I have some gratitude that today is a holiday in the USA so that I'm not at work, which I normally would be at two o'clock in the afternoon, which is what it is for me here in Michigan, and that I'm able to share something with you. When Joe asked me to speak, I thought, what am I going to talk about? And then, of course, I let it go. And this morning when I had this panic at noon my time that I thought, oh no, The meeting is starting and I'm not there, I realized I hadn't thought about a topic. So I said, what's going on in my life right now? And one of the things that is going on in my life right now, and has been part of my life for a while now, is loss and grief. So I thought I'd share some experience, strength, and hope. My experience, strength, and hope on that topic. And I'm going to be reading from this Al-Anon book a little bit. It's called Opening Our Heart's Transforming our losses. And it is a book about loss and grief and how we can move through them, move into them with the tools of Al Anon Recovery. And I will note that this book has very recently been made available as an ebook also. So if that is your preferred mode of reading, go buy it at Amazon or Apple or Nook or wherever else ebooks are sold. So I want to start with a reading, and this is a reading that I was at a point in my life where I didn't know that I was grieving, and I, for some reason I picked up this book, and different parts of this book have spoken to me at different times in my life, but when I opened the book, there's a section titled, The Recurring Nature of Grief, it's right at the beginning of the book, page 14. It says, it is often these little changes that catch us by surprise. They seem to come out of nowhere. The day-in and day-out disappointments of living with an alcoholic can become commonplace until one day we wake up feeling the effect of all those small losses. Why, we wonder, do we suddenly feel sad about our situation, especially when we may have spent months or even years living this way? Many of us have lived with the notion that grief is something we feel when we have lost something tangible, when someone has died or gone away. In al we learn that though the alcoholic may still be living, he or she is unable to be fully present, emotionally, spiritually, or even physically. Recognizing that we are not living the lives we had planned or hoped for with the person we love is a loss that occurs gradually. Each day, we lose a little bit more until what remains is merely a shadow of the person or life we thought we knew. Living with ongoing grief of this kind can be particularly trying. I'm going to come back to that reading where I wanted to start actually was this recognition that I had when I read that passage, that I was grieving the loss of of something that had been part of my life, that had been really important in my life for a long time. And I had recently returned from a conference for this particular hobby that I was involved in. And while I was at that conference, I just wasn't getting the enjoyment out of it that, that I used to get. And I didn't understand why not. And I was feeling very restless, irritable, and discontent during the conference. And I came home, and I picked up this book a few days later, and I read that and recognized that I was no longer as deeply involved in this and that I'd been gradually withdrawing from it for quite a while. And it took this conference where there were several hundred people, all of whom who were gung-ho about this hobby, and I wasn't anymore for me to recognize that. And I read this passage in the book about little changes, and the tears just welled up in me. Like, it gave me permission to feel that grief. And I had never thought about grieving the loss of something like that. As it said, grief is like when somebody dies or when a relationship breaks up. That's when you have grief. And it's not true. It's not true. It happens for things big and small. With that, I can go back and recognize the loss of the life that I thought that we were going to have as my loved one moved more deeply into active alcoholism. The things that we were not able to do, the things that we just weren't doing, the connection that I was losing with this person that I loved deeply because I had put up a wall to protect myself, to protect my feelings. But it didn't really protect my feelings. It just hid them away. And one of those feelings was this grief of loss of what I thought would be. What I thought would be in our lives. And it was replaced by feelings of anger, frustration, resentment, despair, fear. Those were all there in this mess, all mixed up together And I could flip from one to the other in an instant. Not that I necessarily could have named what I was feeling. The only emotion at that time that I really, I think, could name was that I was angry. If we look at the five stages of grief, which, okay, it's a trope, but there's some truth there. And it starts with denial and moves to anger. And I certainly had denied the problem for a long time, but I was still feeling it in that anger just welled up in me. But what it was really was about, a lot of what it was about, was losing what I thought I should have. So grief has been part of my recovery story for a long time, even though I didn't recognize it early on. I just didn't recognize it at all. I bookmarked a reading for that here on page 41. We all have dreams, hopes, and plans for the future. One of the devastating effects of living with alcoholism is that our dreams for the future, for the lives we thought we would have, go unfulfilled. We may have looked forward to a long and happy life with our spouse or partner, only to have that dream shattered. You know, I was having a long life with my partner, but it was not happy. And I really didn't know what to do. There's another section in here about loss and relationships that I'm not going to read from, but it has a subsection titled Stay or Go. That was where I was. I didn't want to go but I didn't think I could stay. I didn't think I could live in the chaos that was our life. There's sort of an anticipation of grief in that place, an anticipation of loss that I'm going to have to leave, but I don't want to leave, but I can't stay here, and I don't know what to do. That was the question in my soul when I came into this program. 20 years ago now, I had that question. And thank God, you people in al told me, that i didn't have to make a decision if i didn't know what the answer was that was right for me and it actually took me about two years to know what my answer was during which my loved one continued to drink and continued to spiral downwards but i realized that i still loved her and that she was still the person that i loved that had just been covered up by this disease and that Eleanor had given me the tools that had given me back myself to be able to actually thrive while that was still happening. And that's a miracle. I love the name of the meeting, Monday Miracle, because that was my first miracle was the taking away of my anger. But the second miracle was the one that happened a couple of years later when I realized that I could stay. As I moved through life, other losses came to me. A big one that came to me was the loss of eventually both my parents to a disease, the disease of dementia. Started with my mother probably more than 10 years ago. It was more gradual for her. At first, I denied that this was happening because didn't want it to happen. But as it became clear that she was affected by this disease, I started to recognize that the actions of a person affected by dementia affected me in much the same way that the actions of a person in active alcoholism affected me. They were very similar, shall we say, symptoms, the loss of memory repetition, those sort of things. And I thought I had dealt with that. I thought I had learned how to detach and I had learned how to live and let live and what I found was that in this different context I wasn't ready. I wasn't able to just say, okay this is the disease speaking and accept it and not get angry, not react. For about the last decade, every time we went to visit my parents, I would always include a local Al-Anon meeting in the middle of the visit because, God help me, I needed it. And that's the beauty here, is that the tools of this program worked for this new situation of loss, this new situation of a person changing into somebody that I didn't always like. That felt kind of familiar. And as that disease progressed, and I lost more and more of the person who was my mother, and as my father started to be affected by his dementia, which was a different kind of dementia but doesn't really matter, losing the person that he had been gradually. There was a lot of long-term grieving as this went on, and Last year, in 2021, I lost both my parents, my father in February, my mother in December. And there's a different, sharper grief that goes with that loss. It wasn't, for me, overwhelming. And I think part of it was that I had already grieved a lot of the loss of the people that they were. And this was an expected to some extent, and to some extent a relief and to their suffering and gratitude that they were able to both die at home in the company of their family. And I'm just going to take a minute here because what I have learned is and I think I have a reading about this, but I don't think I'm going to try to find it. Grief is there. Grief comes and goes. It'll pop up at the most unexpected moment or expected like right now when I'm talking about their loss. But at other times when I see something that I would have liked to share with them, oh, my father would love this. Okay? And up it comes. comes. And what I know now from My work in this program, the work of inventory and of letting go of defects and asking for help from a power greater than myself, what I know is I need to feel that. And when I feel that, when I accept that feeling, then it goes. And sometimes it's there longer, and sometimes it's just a moment. But I know that if I don't let myself feel it, that it's going to come back. It's going to sit there and it's going to fester and it's going to come back in a more ugly way. It's going to come back in anger at something else. It's going to come back in resentment of something. So I need to feel it. And along with that, and I think equally important, is learning to live in today rather than living in the past and a short reading from the book here again section titled hope for today so much of our recovery in elanon is about striving to live in the present moment when we can focus on today we find that our fears about the future and worries about the past no longer dominate our lives as they once did by learning how to manage this day only we make a commitment to building a better life for ourselves so a couple months ago now we were able to come together to have uh, an in-person memorial for my mother's life. I went to where she had lived, where my brother and sister live, to be there for a couple of weeks, partly to help prepare for that ceremony and partly to help dig through uh, everything that that our parents had left behind as we worked to determine what we want to keep, what we can just throw away, I don't even like to say that, but it's true. They left so much stuff. And what, maybe we'll sell or give away. And I found in that visit, in that work, an unexpected gift. Going through their piles of papers and going through all of the thousands of photographs that my father had taken over the 90 years of his life, I was able to re- know who they were before their respective diseases took them in charge and took them down. Because, to be honest, I mostly did not like the person my mother had become. Her disease led her into anger a lot of the time. So to be reminded of the 80 years she lived before that disease started turning her into somebody else was a gift. To be reminded of the love that they shared over the 70 years they were together was a gift. To come to know, in a way, the people that they were before I existed was a gift. And yeah, there were moments when I picked up a picture and just the tears came, or I picked up a poem that my mother had written to my father on the occasion of their 50-something wedding anniversary. But it was a gift that gave them in their wholeness back to me. And I would not have wanted to miss that. And if I had to go through some grieving to get there, that's also a gift. So I think I'm about at the end of my... A lot of time here. I meant to start a timer. I didn't, but I just wanted to close with the power of acceptance that the power that acceptance has had in my life over the last years, decades, as I came to recognize that as a tool. That in accepting things as they are, I can then free myself to find the gratitude, to find the sadness, and to experience the grieving without denying it, without shoving it down, without the anger that I had for so long. I hope that something that I said may have touched one or two of you, and thank you again for having me here. And I think now it's your turn to share. And before we move into your contributions Take a little break. I picked some songs here. It's really hard to find songs about small losses. They all are about big losses. I picked three songs that are meaningful to me and speak to my experience with loss and grief. The first one is from Eric Clapton. It's called Tears in Heaven. And my understanding is that he wrote this after the tragic death of his son. Some lyrics here. I'll find my way through night and day because I know I just can't stay here in heaven. Time can bring you down, time can bend your knees, time can break your heart. Have you begging, please? Begging, please. Beyond the door, there's peace, I'm sure, and I know there'll be no more tears in heaven. To me, this talks about the experience of continuing with my life after an important loss. Start with Amy, who wrote, Hi, Spencer. I think I just had a God moment. And I got to say, this email came in really quickly after I had sent out my request. Amy says, I think I just had a God moment. It's been about a year since I've attended a meeting or listened to your podcast, but noticed your email within minutes of its arrival. I don't want to let this opportunity pass. Grief and loss are huge in my life and have been for years. I'll boil a very long story down to its essential elements. My husband is my primary alcoholic. We've been married for 11 years and have three children. Our youngest, our only daughter, died in 2018 as a result of injuries she sustained in an accident that occurred in our home. I was working in my home office, and my husband was watching the kids in the living room. While his drinking was problematic before the accident, thankfully alcohol did not play a role that day. However, afterwards, his drinking quickly increased in intensity. That, combined with my own personal and profound grief, consumed me for the next two and a half years. It was in 2021 that my husband entered treatment. I felt hopeful, but then he started drinking again. His drinking behavior is improved compared to before treatment, if that makes sense. So I'm grateful for that. I have realized that I grieve many things. Most obviously, I grieve the loss of my daughter. I grieve the loss of innocence my remaining two sons have experienced as witnesses to the accident, my husband's disease, my own grief. I grieve the loss or lack of full marital partner I had hoped for. In your share, you mentioned needing to actually feel the grief in your life in order to move through it. I find it can be so consuming that I often avoid it, but then it backs up on me. When that happens, I can't be the mom my kids need. Hearing you say that was a beautiful reminder, and I'm going to buy that book about loss so I can move forward. Thank you, Amy. Thank you, Amy, for sharing your experience. And as I said in my lead, I have found that book. I return to that book, Transforming Our Losses, over and over, over the time that I've had it. Yeah. Jillian writes in, thank you so much, Spencer, for sending me this email invite on such a wonderful topic. The Opening Our Hearts, Transforming Our Losses was one of the first non-daily readers I chose to read. I found the wisdom and comfort of the book immeasurable. This is the second time this week the book has been brought to my attention. I guess I'm being guided to read it again. I first read it five years ago. At the end, I went straight back to the beginning and read it again. It was during the second reading my father passed away. It was very sudden. Within two weeks he was gone. The words of this book carried me through this difficult time. It introduced me to the grief I had for my failed marriage, my unhappy childhood, my unhappy existence, to be honest. It allowed me to feel and acknowledge these losses, which sometimes felt like punishments. It encouraged me to explore my understanding of what I had experienced, and it named the feelings that may apply. You see, I don't know my own emotions, I couldn't name them, and I was unable to express them. I do believe, like the great analogy of the peeling onion, I am slowly discovering who I am and how to feel. Each layer reveals a little bit more of me to myself. My marriage didn't survive. Alcoholism stole my hopes and dreams. I collected these little losses and used them to remind me how unhappy and undeserving I was. In the end, I just couldn't stay any longer. It was a year after leaving that I realized that I was ill. Without my husband's drinking to focus on, I had to look at myself. I was spiritually sick. My own light had gone out. This fellowship is teaching me how to connect with myself and others. Through sharing my experience, I gain acceptance. Through listening to others, I learn to accept myself. The books provide me with the skills I need to adult myself in life. I'm slowly becoming the person who I believe my higher power wants me to be. I still feel loss and grief, especially around others who have partners and children in their lives, but it is easier to accept this pain today. I'm forever grateful for all of your podcasts, and with love. Jillian in Glasgow, Scotland. Thank you, Jillian. Thank you for writing. Shannon wrote, Hi, Spencer. Thank you for bringing up this topic. It's one that unfortunately I have a lot of experience in, but through working the steps I have also found a lot of strength and hope as well and wanted to share that. My father was my best friend and he was also an alcoholic. He used to say that no one would miss him when he was gone, but he's been gone For almost 4,000 days now, and I've missed him every single one. When he died, it felt as if part of me, the part I now refer to as my inner child, thanks to A.C.A., died with him. But through working the steps of A.C.A., I know now that is not true. Before my father's death, I lived for his approval and love. I realize now I never needed his approval because I always had it. As for love, I've learned that even in death, it can never be destroyed. I believe that love is the greatest form of energy. The first law of thermodynamics states that energy can neither be created nor destroyed. When I replace the word energy with the word love in that statement, my grief and loss transform. It's given me so much strength and hope to know that the love my father and I had was neither created nor destroyed. It just was and always will be. When I feel like I'm falling into a spiral of grief like I sometimes still do, I use this knowledge as hooks to stop myself from falling. Cancer may have taken my dad's body, God may have even taken his soul, but nothing, not even time and space can take the love. In a one-year span around my father's death, I lost eight additional people and almost lost my own life and my son's life due to preeclampsia. I felt as if my entire childhood was being erased and part of me was too, but now looking back I can see how all that grief and loss led me to wake up from my life. I had been married to a man who was abusive, but like many people in domestic violence situations, I became so used to it, I didn't even realize I was being abused. After my father's death, however, I started to notice it, and slowly I began to wake up. After about five years, I finally built the courage to leave my husband and get a divorce. A short while later, I met my second husband, who was a member of both AA and Al-Anon at the time, and he is the one who introduced me to Al-Anon and took me to my first ACA meeting. Unfortunately, he relapsed in 2020 and then again in 2022, becoming violent and abusive each time. But with my al sponsor's help, I learned to make an amends to myself and that amends went something like this. The abuse was insidious and it was always a cycle acceptance of love bombing, devaluing abuse, and then finally abandonment. After experiencing horrible abuse in 2020 during my husband's first relapse, my amend to myself was that as soon as I started to see the cycle began and I felt unsafe I would speak up and put enough distance between us until I felt safe again. In twenty twenty two I noticed the cycle starting and I called my sponsor. He gently reminded me of my amends to myself. I sat my husband down and told him his behavior was making me uncomfortable and I felt unsafe. He said in his mind he had already relapsed. I asked him to leave. There is no way I could have had the courage to do that before ACA and Al-Anon, and the very man I asked to leave that day is the same one who introduced me to those programs, the same man I never would have met had I not gotten divorced from my first husband, a divorce that was a result of waking up due to my grief over the loss of my father. Like dominoes, one by one, each one fell, setting off a chain to my recovery. Today, I have gone through my second divorce, and I can honestly say I feel happier than I have in years, perhaps even decades. Thanks to working the steps, I faced the childhood trauma, the grief and loss from my father's death, realized why I was being attracted to emotionally unavailable people, discovered who I truly am, and had the courage to change what I could. I'm now not only okay being alone, I've learned to enjoy it and can spot the red flags in potential relationships like I never could before. I can also now set and hold boundaries, but I have learned that I had to build the house, my identity, before putting up the fence, boundaries. I now get to sponsor folks in both of these programs where we share our experience, strength, and hope with each other as fellow travelers in recovery. There are also two books I wanted to recommend that really helped me with grief and loss as well. The first is A Grief Observed by C.S. Lewis. In his book, Lewis compares grief and loss to a soldier losing a limb after being in battle. The leg never returns, it's always a loss. Just like the soldier I had to learn to adapt to the loss, At first because I had to, but eventually because I wanted to. The pain healed, even though the loss is still there. With grief, every now and then, even almost 11 years later, I have phantom pain where I reach out to scratch that leg that's no longer there. The sadness returns, but thanks to ACA teaching me that it's okay to feel my feelings, I can feel the sadness, accept it, and let it flow through me when needed. This is major progress in my recovery. The second book is Return to Love by Marianne Williamson. In this book, the author compares God to the sun and our souls to rays of sunlight. A ray of sun doesn't have a brain like we do to think it's separate from the sun, so it isn't. This concept had a very profound effect on my relationship with my higher power and on my grief and recovery. If my soul is always attached to God and my father's is as well, then we are never really apart. And if my soul is attached to God like a ray of sunlight, is to the sun, then I am never really alone. Understanding this has completely changed the way I look at life and death now, and has even helped me feel safe in a world that has always scared me. I hope my experience, strength, and hope might f- help someone listening. And thank you again for this topic and for all the work you do with The Recovery Show. Wishing you, your listeners, recovery, peace, and serenity we all deserve to know. Shannon Thank you so much, Shannon. I will put links to those books in the show notes at therecovery.show slash 386. Patrick sent a voice memo.
1: Good morning, Spencer. My name is Patrick, and I'm grateful for the chance to share on the topic of loss and grief. I remember the page from your reading, page 44, the reading about the loss of the thing you should have had or would have liked to have, and that you lost for me that's all around family I really want to have a family get married have children and be a father to my kids and due to my addiction that didn't happen and I feel loss and grief for that but I also feel loss and grief for the years I've lost in the time I was drinking and loss and grief for me are really entangled with shame because did I cause it, the years of loss? Did I cause the loss of my family? I don't know if there's a real answer, but it sure was a big part of it. And there's another kind of loss I, f- I feel, the loss for the youth of my children. They really had another an, an childhood than I would like to have given them. So the first period after I got divorced... I saw my children every other week, in the weekends, and I remember being really egocentric about my loss, or feelings of loss, because I was so, when they arrived I was always busy with feelings I would have when they would leave, because when they would leave I would be alone again, I would miss them again, and I would feel pain again, and that were things I really had a hard time handling, because that was not the life I had wanted. And it took me quite some time to have another reaction to what happened. But, of course, that is also caused by periods in which I didn't see my children because I was in active addiction. Looking back, I noticed things starting to change. I think mostly because of my attitude. First of all, I need to get really get into recovery to be able to be healthy for myself and to be healthy for the people around me. So that was the first step I had to take to be able to handle grief and to handle it differently, I think. It also reminds me of the way I was living my life. I was living my life in a way where I was always looking back at the past, the things I had done wrong, the things I should have done differently. And was fearing the future, what will happen next, will I be able to handle it, etc. I think one of the tools I use now is to live in the now. That's easier said than done, but... To look at what's important today, what's important in this moment. And not spend so much time on looking back or looking forward. For what happens I can change and what will be, I don't know. So that's one of the tools I used. And in the context of my children, that's also one of the tools I used. I try to be there with them and to do things I like to do with them and they like to do today. And what comes of it will come of it. And one of the things I've noticed is that one of the miracles indeed is the forgiveness children have and their willingness to trust me as a parent. My relationship with my children has really grown in the past year and a half. And I notice now that they ask me to do things with them and come to me if they have problems, where they wouldn't have done that some time ago. As for grief itself, of course I can feel grief. I think you can also feel grief even if you've caused things yourself. And I don't deny my grief anymore. But I have a, a different look upon it, I think, because I, I think it needs a place in my life. And my grief has changed in time because of my recovery, because of my outlook on life, because of my life changing and evolving, I think. I don't know. I don't have the answers. guess what I want to say is that There's still feelings of grief and loss in my life, but it has changed. As my life has changed, due to my recovery and due to the way I live my life. One day at a time, being grateful for the things that are there. Not too much thinking about the future or the past. Feeling for the things I can do and asking help. Other people praying to my higher power. So I guess that's about it.
0: Thanks. Thank you, Patrick, for your contributions. Thank you. Jessica wrote, Hi, Spencer. Thanks so much for sharing your experience with grief and loss. I love the book, Opening Our Hearts, Transforming Our Losses, too. When I joined al three years ago, it was to address the acute pain I felt over the collapse of my alcoholic marriage. We were two years post-divorce, and I was still so angry. My anger felt so intense that it was starting to massively impact my life. I was quick to react, had very little serenity, and felt like my happiness was very much attached to whether the alcoholic was drinking or not. This resentment felt like I was dumping hot oil on my brain. I parent two little ones and knew that this was not a good thing for my kids to witness. It was destroying my peace of mind. I have familiarity with the Twelve Steps as I'm a member of AA too. This further complicated the resentment. AA literature taught me to pray for the person I was resentful for and ask my higher power, to direct my thoughts towards what the higher power would have me be. What I figured out eventually, much as you shared in your excerpt, was that the resentment was a mask for what I was dealing with, which was, truthfully, that I was in a state of deep grief over the effects of alcoholism in my life. As a friend in Al-Anon likes to say, I grew up in alcoholism. I married alcoholism. I am an alcoholic. It was just everywhere. And when I looked at my part in all of it, that final column in the fourth step, I had to deal with my martyrdom and victimization or it was going to wreck my life and continue to destroy my serenity, as it had been doing for the greater portion of my life. I am so grateful for the literature in Alanon. I'm so grateful for the language and vocabulary that gives my experience words to express itself. When I was new to Alanon, I devoured every piece of paper that the organization produced. I wanted to live, I didn't want to be devoured. My father died from the disease. My mother is still actively practicing. My children's father is on and off in terms of his drinking, but has not for whatever reason been able to address the spiritual nature of recovery. He can put the drink down for a few months or even for a year, but the behaviors remain. Focusing on the alcoholic had allowed me to survive as a kid and even in my marriage to a certain extent, because there was violence in it. I am learning how to put the focus back on myself and to be responsible for my serenity. I am learning to accept the losses I have experienced due to alcoholism and have come to realize that there is no closure when dealing with the disease. You just become more resilient. Pauline Boss is a psychologist who researches ambiguous loss and her work has become so validating for me. All too often we think the Kubler-Ross stages of grief apply to our own situation and they really don't sufficiently. Kubler-Ross was even known to say she found her own stages limiting and didn't want them attached to her forever because... Not everyone gets to this perfect place of acceptance. I certainly haven't. There's no closure to alcoholism, at least not for me. I've just learned not to wrestle with it any longer. I've learned to admit defeat. Active alcoholism requires that of me. It also requires boundary and all of the 12 steps on a daily basis. I love your show. Thank you so much for existing. Jessica. I don't know if anybody's thanked me for existing. Thank you. (laughs) Anne says, Hello, Spencer. As many have remarked earlier on this topic of loss and grief, I find that when small cameo memory snapshots pop into my mind of my loved one as a healthy, strong, vibrant young person, tears come quickly because I see how much from his life this disease has taken. My best hope is to immediately think of program tools, member shares, and your podcast to bring me back to some present moment equilibrium. I'm grateful every night and many days for your podcast, you and the people who share are real lifesavers for me, Ian H. Thank you, Ian. Thank you. Mary writes, Thank you, Spencer, for sharing your experience, strength, and hope with the topic of loss and grief. I love what you said about how grief and grieving entails more than a loved one dying. My dear mother is 96, and I will soon be grieving her passing. Even though I try to prepare for it, I don't think anyone is ready until it actually happens. The loss I have experienced has been with an estranged daughter-in-law. Our son still talks to us, but we haven't seen our grandson since before COVID. For various reasons that I won't go into, she doesn't return emails or acknowledge her birthday gifts, etc. We have no contact with her at all. My birthday was last week, and I got a card from them, and only my son signed it. It hurt, and I cried and acknowledged my pain and allowed myself to grieve for a bit. I chose not to go down the rabbit hole of pain and stay there for any length of time because that doesn't serve me well. I did say to myself how it hurt and again acknowledge the hurt with my feelings word list. That was a good thing for me to do and a good way to respond to the pain. I didn't make a big deal about it but I let myself feel the pain of loss of this relationship crying deeply for a bit and then let go and give her to my higher power, God. Let go and let God. I have come a long way in all of this. And for that, I'm grateful for my recovery tools and groups, and amazing sponsor. Thank you, Spencer, for this amazing work you do. We all appreciate it beyond words. Mary P. P P.S. Happiness is an inside job. My fruitful, beautiful life is not contingent on one person who chooses not to be in it. I have many loved ones that love to be with me. I will focus on them. Thanks. Thanks, Mary, for writing. Carol says, Thanks for the voice memo, identifying hidden grieving and also obvious grief. You've had so much of that in recent years. Your perspective is valuable. Thank you. I appreciate your effort and your service. Currently in recovery, I am learning a lot about identifying forgotten, unmet expectations, thwarted dreams, invalidated feelings. Also letting go and not being able to control outcomes, but still wanting to. The gift of recovery has taught me to value being gentle and not pushing past the difficult and messy grieving middle, slowing down even when I am feeling like I'm falling behind, taking care of myself even when I don't feel like it, trusting my higher power when I am cranky. Thanks for the book recommendation and thanks for listening, Carol. Thank you, Carol. We have a couple of shares that came in from two different Louises. This is Louise from California. Dearest Spencer and Recovery Family, Thank you so much for sharing your experience, strength, and hope with us. I, too, am reading the book you mentioned, Opening Our Hearts, Transforming Our Losses. I can very much relate to your experience of seeing your mother slip away from you, little by little, from the disease of dementia, as I also lost my mother to the disease of alcohol-induced dementia, and it was a painful journey, indeed. My relationship with my mother was quite complicated and enmeshed, to say the least, and definitely dysfunctional. So when she died, I experienced what's referred to as complicated grief, which is something I am still working through six years later. I've gone through phases of my own recovery where I have allowed myself to be angry at my mother, even after she passed. I used to put her on a pedestal, which is certainly not where she or anyone else belongs. I see now that was part of my denial of the fact that I had grown up in a sometimes violent alcoholic home. I was taught to keep all our skeletons in the closet and play the part of We are really, oh, so much better than anyone else facade. This did not serve me well then, nor does it now, if I slip into that way of thinking. Today, I can say I am so very grateful for the alcoholic God put in my life, my current husband, which, when his drinking made me so uncomfortable, I finally made it into the rooms of Al-Anon, then further seeking healing in ACA and OA. Today, I can experience profound grief and sometimes overfeel about anything. I had an experience recently when I had to make a decision about a big monthly financial commitment, and it turns out there was so much grief attached to this decision, which made me far too emotional without oversharing, I realized now that there was so much unhealed childhood trauma attached to this one decision. I was being asked if I wanted to buy a particular horse which belongs to a new friend. Of course, this purchase would mean a lot of money each month, and yet my heart really wanted this. My head kept saying, pause and turn it over. Part of the story is I had recently lost one of my horses to colic and hadn't really dealt with the grief attached to that. The owner of this new horse had fallen off the wagon and was recently arrested for a DUI and needed to liquidate her assets quickly. So this brought up my people-pleasing traits of wanting to rescue, coupled with triggering my own memories of when my eldest son was in his disease and was suicidal and was arrested the very morning after his kid brother graduated from high school. Sadly, he never made it to his brother graduation, which I remember attending and trying so hard to enjoy the huge event. My youngest son had overcome a learning disability, and his graduation was a huge accomplishment. So there I was, trying to soak up all the joy while at the same time getting suicidal text messages from my eldest alcoholic son. The following morning, I remember standing in the doorway with my youngest son's cap and gown right there from the night before, as I watched my eldest boy taken away in handcuffs. This is one of the byproducts of this disease. It shows up in our lives whenever it chooses to. A good reminder of how powerless we are over it, but we are never hopeless. Anyway, that event played out like a really bad dream, but it happened and somehow by God's grace we all survived. So yeah, a simple question of do you want to buy my horse had a lot of emotional strings attached for me as I started to swim in all those feelings. After sharing with my sponsor, She said I just needed to keep turning it over to God, which I was, but then I kept picking it up again. She told me each time you pick it up, you keep giving it back again and again. I was so emotional about this as it brought up so many childhood memories of how I would oftentimes escape my unhappy childhood home for hours with my pony so as not to go home to the alcoholic mother I had. Currently, I am reading through the AA 12 and 12 book with my sponsor, and I came across the term wallowing in emotionalism which hit me like a ton of bricks. Wow, that was exactly what I was doing. Wallowing, like a big old hippopotamus wallowing in the mud of misery, drunk on my sadness, grief, and loss. We read a portion together from the big book of AA, which says we turn over our fears, our selfishness, our self-pity immediately. I got so much relief from my obsessive thinking and wallowing It is very powerful. This program is very powerful. Bill W.'s gift to the world, in my humble opinion, is no doubt divinely inspired and it's little experiences like these that confirm for me again and again that this is truly a spiritual program, a design for living, a journey of recovering from the effects of growing up in dysfunction and addiction. The only addiction I seek today is to be addicted to this way of life. I cannot live without my God connection, and I don't even want to try. I love this way of life. To all the newcomers listening out there, please don't leave before the miracle happens. Peace, blessings, many thanks for what you do, and much love, Louise in California. Thank you for sharing, Louise. Thank you. And Louise in Oregon writes, Hi, Spencer. I've been listening to the podcast for about eight months. I've had many losses in my life, but the hardest was when my alcoholic husband said he wasn't going to come to my father's funeral. I had been woken up by a phone call telling me he had died earlier that morning, and I was booking our flight from the West Coast to the East Coast when my husband announced he wasn't going to come with me. He is usually a high-functioning alcoholic, but he started telling me that he was a mean, selfish son of a bitch and he wasn't coming. I told him it would do irreparable damage to our marriage of 27 years. Eventually, he decided to come with me. I gave a eulogy at the funeral, which was two days after my father's death. We are Jewish. This is normal for us. That night, we were at my parents' house and we were thinking about going back to our hotel when my husband collapsed and started having a violent convulsion. Fortunately, one of my cousins was standing behind him and caught him when he fell. I was in shock. I thought he was dying on the night of my father's funeral. I thought that I needed to keep him from dying by telling him that I loved him over and over. He was admitted to the hospital my father had been in before he died. He spent a few days in the ICU but being stabilized for alcohol withdrawal. I found out later that he had stolen some oxycodone from the medicine cabinet in the bathroom as well. I spent the rest of the time going to see him at the hospital with my family, which was very supportive. He was totally committed to abstinence at that point for a good several months until the holidays came around and he relapsed. I had been going to AA with him since I had been drinking too much in my codependency. When he relapsed, my sponsor told me I needed Al-Anon. I never thought about how going to AA with him was codependent. I feel like I've never had the space to process my grief about my father's death. I had to be present for my mother For my husband, but not myself. In going to Al-Anon, I got to do my own program. I didn't know that it would be about me. I thought it would be a way to get him to be sober. At the least, I thought, I would make such a good recovery that he would be inspired to do it himself. I can see that my husband and I are two sides of the same coin. I understand things differently now. I have connections with my home group and sponsor. I'm profoundly grateful for what is good in my life and for my husband's not dying on the floor of my parents' house. I will never forget wiping his blood off the floor the next morning. I can't wallow in the grief of losing the delusion that my husband is not really a true alcoholic. I have to focus on what is right about my marriage and remember that my father was a man who wouldn't have wanted us to be indefinitely miserable about something uncontrollable like his death. I continue with Al-Anon and my husband continues to drink and I continue to learn how, not obsess about how I cannot change my husband's drinking any more than I can change my father's death. I really appreciate what you do with this podcast for having a chance to share my thoughts on this. Thank you, Louise from Oregon. And thank you, thank you, Louise. Amanda sent us a voice memo.
2: Hi, Spencer and everyone at The Recovery Show, all of the co-hosts and people who contribute in the community. I'm so grateful to The Recovery Show. I wanted to send a message about loss and grief And thank you so much to my sponsor who has helped me so much with this topic. I'm pretty much just going to be quoting her a lot of what I'm saying. Yeah, she's really helped me to see how to meet grief as it arises, practicing accepting it, and also knowing that change can bring about grief. Like she said, even if there's like a positive change, like you get a positive job promotion or something, like there can still be grief in that. And I've been noticing and learning, just naming grief more where I didn't maybe understand that I felt grief, especially around, I don't know, hobbies that I did 10 years ago that now I haven't been a part of because there was like a negative experience there and then it turned me off to it. But I've been missing that part of it that I loved and how that's grief, obviously COVID and things that have been lost, people, lives, as well as just experiences and time and so much to do with family disease of alcoholism grief in relationships the idea of a kind of a relationship right so all that stuff but basically what i wanted to share is that my sponsor i really love the way she has described it to me she said treat my grief like it's an unexpected outside friend a little bit of that detachment from self, like just as if there was a friend that showed up at my doorstep unannounced, just crying, knocked on my door. There's my grieving friend. And then to think to myself, what would I do in that moment? You know, would I be frustrated that they were there? Would I tell them they were wrong? Would I push them away? No, of course. If someone came to my doorstep and was crying, I would probably stop what I was doing, open the door immediately, give them a hug, or do what I could do to soothe them—water, sit down, blanket, tea, something. Let's talk, and then clear my schedule, take the required time in that moment. Maybe, of course, unless I'm in a real emergency, like I probably do have five to twenty minutes to truly like drop whatever I was doing. And just like in that moment, accept my friend who just showed up on the doorstep. Not, oh, let me just finish this email and then I'll open the door to you. (laughs) Like, I would just open the door and greet my friend and hold space for them. And then to think, okay, now how can you be that present and that caring and thoughtful for myself? When grief shows up as if I was that friend who just knocked on my door, walked up unannounced. One tool, which is of course the Al-Anon literature transforming our hearts and losses, oh, I'm saying that wrong, but the ACA practice of reparenting has also been really helpful for me with grief or just like any big feelings. So yeah, I'm not sure if Al-Anon folks really know about ACA, the adult child of alcoholics program. It's a 12-step program kind of came out of Alateen. It's a separate program, although there are Al-Anon adult child meetings, but the like ACA has developed in the last couple of years, like in the last maybe three years, I think this reparenting side has really grown and they have a four-step reparenting process. And I've learned about it. There are some like 15 minute meetings that do just like this reparenting thing. And it's been hugely helpful with this sort of like meeting grief, like meeting myself where I'm at in a moment where I'm probably particularly activated or triggered. I'm sure there are other people who could share more about this practice. But for me, it's just really about like attuning to my inner child or teen or if the metaphor works better to like that friend that just showed up unannounced. And how would we support them in that moment? Hold space for them. And then I can learn how to do that for myself or imagine and almost detach from myself in order to then be more compassionate to myself and, and really be my own compassionate witness rather than like still wanting your partner to be the one to meet all your needs or something, being self supporting rather than going to the hardware store for bread. This is something I'm really working on of like when I'm having that moment, can I be the person to just witness my Grief for myself and figure out, like, how do I need to almost do a step five here? Like, how can I just be really honest and accept what I'm feeling to then help me discern? Okay. Now, who can I call? Who is a safe person on my sponsor program? People, what is the way that I can connect with my higher power in this moment? So it's just been a very practical tool. This like ACA, reparenting practice that has particularly helped me specifically, I think, with grief because grief has just been so confusing. I've learned a lot about it in the last few years especially with this concept of grief, not always just being about death, although there has been so much of that in the pandemic. But yeah, grief of other things and loss of other things as well. There's a lot of mental illness in my family as well as alcoholism. And addiction. And there's quite a few people in my life who are living, maybe we still have a relationship, but because of their mental health, they're a very different person or a family member who is now experiencing homelessness. The disease of alcoholism has the alcohol-related dementia. There's some ways where I've been looking at grief, even though the person is still living, there's grief in the person that they once were, or also the relationship that once thought we had or would have wanted to have, whatever. But it's just that one of the biggest tools that's helped me particularly with unpacking some of those, I would say like complicated, like confusing, it was just confusing to me feelings about how to like, when I'm really deeply upset and activated, and then sometimes it's really hard to know what is the next right indicated step, right? What's the next 1% thing? Oh my gosh, I am realizing I'm talking for so long, but anyways, yeah, the ACA reparenting thing has been really helpful to me and they have some good literature on it that kind of guides you through it there's also a whole book like a whole loving parent guidebook but it's just been very powerful for me so i just want to share it there's also another metaphor that my, i really have loved that my sponsor brings up because i think for me with other emotions like they grow or come up more gradually whereas grief can sometimes like really just come out of nowhere. Like truly, like the other day I was having a fine time and then all of a sudden like, I felt like tears, like I was like about to cry. It just came on so suddenly. Whereas anger, like I can, t- I tend to be like a little irritated and then a little frustrated and then it keeps building unless I, ex- you know, healthy express my anger, I <laughs> get my anger out. Whereas sometimes like grief could just really come up and has shared with me to think of like grief, like a wave. And so, in that moment, if I can just really accept the grief, fully feel it, allow whatever comes up, then usually the grief will just pass through and then also leave just as quickly as it came, like just the wave, which to be honest, it's very interesting. I actually have found that with grief and other emotions, it's it's really intense like a wave, but then it really just like washes right back out. It, but only if I really feel it. If I don't, then it get stuck, shut down, or then maybe it does come out as like anger or something else. I'm I've learned a lot through outside help, like somatic work and like the body keeps the score, Dr. Sarno, all of that. And I have a lot of health issues and unsurprisingly, a lot developed and worsened during the massive crisis that brought me into Al-Anon. So I definitely think that if I don't process it, then I'll have maybe like the next day or leave that to I'll have the headache or my muscles will be tense or I'll have a flare up of my chronic health condition, that kind of stuff the grief sometimes comes unannounced and I don't have to try to like understand like why it came up or what has activated what was the trigger sometimes it was unannounced just like the tidal wave was unannounced the crying friend on my doorstep was unannounced my upset inner child inner teen that it just unannounced has happened actually yeah this is one thing that I like that I've heard in the ACA rooms I'm sure also in the al rooms that anytime there's like an activation or trigger as opposed to maybe before when it was like it was just so destabilizing and it was such a hard time. It's like I'm doing anything to feel better or whatever. But instead, it's no, this is actually an opportunity for me to heal and connect with that part and to really feel it. And but not just feel it like it's, oh, this is a moment where we can heal this. And my sponsor has said, she's yeah, it's unannounced. It was a divine appointment. It was a higher power appointment. You didn't know it was on your calendar. You didn't know it was on your schedule today, but it's here. I've also started with a few of my program friends who have just been saying like, yeah, like there's much to grieve. There's a lot to grieve. Again, I think I stole that from my sponsor, but just like sometimes balancing the the balance beam depending on how I'm feeling of is it resignation, is it acceptance? And it also reminds me of the concept with the three A's. Accepting it doesn't mean I have to like it or wish it was this way or approve of it or if I was if it was under my control, it wouldn't be this way. But I have to accept it. And then if I accept it, being aware of how the grief comes up for me. I think I used to care more about being aware of like why it's come up, but whereas now I'm just trying to be like You know, maybe it's not quite so important about why, but it's like how, what are the signals that it is coming up? And then accepting. And then it's the action. It's like then this is really where the ACA reparenting tool comes in. So, okay, what is the action here that I can take to hold space for myself, have a bucket of compassion over my head and, and actually like ultimately, especially in the moment if I'm like stressed and wanting to be productive and it feels like this is getting in the way, like ultimately. Holding space for myself and learning what is the correct discerning higher power, loving parent, good best friend or lifeguard, whatever metaphor you want to use. What would be the best action to take so that then I actually do calm my nervous system and ground and have a sense of flow and completion around this grief moment. And then I can move on. So yeah, I am grateful for this topic and I'm excited to listen to it. And I hope everyone has a great rest of your day, whenever and wherever you're listening. Thank you. Bye.
0: Thank you, Amanda, for that. And you also sent me some resources that I will put links in the show notes at therecovery.show slash 386. Pat left a voicemail about grief and loss.
3: Hi, Spencer. This is Pat from the West Coast. The loss I've experienced in my life that have been around my alcoholic loved ones has been kind of a loss of my fantasy family. And interestingly, that also occurred with my second husband, who has nothing to do with alcoholism. But again, I had a a fantasy about what that second family was going to be like. And there was some grieving around losing that. And I really needed my Al-Anon tool to manage my choices around that, learning how not to try to control the situation. I also have lost both my parents and I lost my primary person that got me into Al-Anon, who was my first husband. And even though we were split, I still loved him. I still had compassion for him. And to this day, it's been a few years now. I still contemplate my interactions with him. And I think that's the thing that strikes me most about grieving is for me. It's where the program comes in. There's a sadness, and that's normal, and I think can be identified and and accepted. But there's the bigger element for me that's problematic is regret over the past choices, and of course that that means I'm living in the past, thinking of it only, or I should have done something different. So. For me, I find grieving and regret because in looking at those things that I regret, how I process it is then being able to learn from those and then move forward and use step nine, making amends where possible, living amends where possible. And I have made amends to my first husband and particularly to my parents in how I behave towards others. And that does alleviate my grief and sense of loss a great deal. It then gives me the freedom, as you mentioned, it's very freeing to acknowledge and work through a grieving process because it's given me the freedom to remember my relationships, the good in them, the positive in them, the loving in them the part that I had in them that was good and loving. So that's been really beneficial for working through them. I think in terms of tools for dealing with grieving, step four, like I said, step nine, having a sponsor who I could talk through things with was super important. I don't think it coincidental that my sponsor that I chose not too long after my mother had passed um, was an older woman that I dearly loved. It's not like my mom, but I think there's a connection there. I think the other thing about grieving is that when I'm able to understand my own grief process, then I'm able to recognize what other people around me might be grieving, and that's really important. And then this was a bit of a timely topic. I had just found out that someone else in my close family that we didn't have any idea may well be an alcoholic. And your topic and your discussion then Gave me that aha moment to say ah okay, now I understand what I'm feeling. I am I'm grieving for this person's status as being in the throes of alcoholism, and they haven't come up for air yet. That actually was super helpful, really helpful. At any rate, many thanks to you, Spencer as always, to Eric, to everybody else, everybody who called in. And I can't tell you how often I think, oh, I'd love to respond to that person, or oh, they really hit the mark there. So thank you to everybody who contributes, and hope your summer has gone very well. Thanks. Bye-bye.
0: Thank you, Pat. Thank you for sharing. And now a break before other feedback mail. (laughs) And the second song that I picked here is one from my youth. James Taylor's song, Fire and Rain, which, again, is about the loss of somebody that he knew. And the fact that he wasn't told about that loss for a while. The song starts with the lyric something like, Just yesterday I heard that you were gone. I don't remember exactly. The chorus, I've seen fire and I've seen rain. I've seen sunny days that I thought would never end. I've seen lonely times when I could not find a friend, but I always thought that I'd see you again. To me, that last line in particular speaks to a lot of what grief over loss is. That, that thing that I had, whether it was full engagement in a hobby or whether it was the presence and love of my parents, you never really think that you won't ever have it again, you know. Now it's time to hear your voices about other topics. Melanie sent us a voice memo with some of her experience, strength, and hope.
4: Hi, Spencer. Listening to your show today, I heard a share about someone who lost their qualifier. The show was number 361. And the person shared that their qualifier was their ex, and clearly there was a bond between them. Ultimately, their disease of alcoholism killed them. It jarred me back to the day that I heard about the death of one of my qualifiers. He had been my ex for 16 years by that point. I had married and had children and moved on, but I received the news in a text from my sister while facilitating a meeting with my management team during a very stressful time for our organization. I recall barely missing a beat when I glanced at the message on my phone. Chris is dead. Liver cancer. I gasped out loud, closed my eyes, and heard my team members say, Is everything okay? I opened my eyes and said, Yes, I just learned that my high school sweetheart died. It was expected, but still hard to hear. They gave quick condolences, and I put us back on track. In that moment, I remember thinking that if I didn't show some sort of emotion or explain my lack of emotion, my team would think I was cold-hearted. As a female leader, being too businesslike is seen as a defect, and I know they were looking to me for cues on how to respond, or rather, if it was okay to respond to crises with emotion. What was really going through my mind was the thought that it was a good thing I left him when I did, or today would be the day that I became a widow assuming we would eventually marry if I stayed with him. I felt selfish about thinking that, that it's somehow always about me. At the time, I had no recovery in my life other than the self-help and leadership books I devoured. At home, I was dealing with my sister's diagnosis of a brain tumor and the realization that I couldn't leave my children to go help her because I was dealing with active alcoholism in my marriage. I felt I had to choose between my children and my sister, I hadn't yet conceived of choosing myself. Rather than feel the loss of the person I considered my soulmate from the age of 15 to 24, I told myself it was better for everyone, including him, that he was gone. To the agony of his grown sons, he never stopped drinking to the very end. So today when I heard the share about losing a similar qualifier, the tears gushed from my eyes. It's funny how it happens. I was enjoying a day of home projects, and had stopped to make my favorite summertime lunch, tomato sandwich. Even the tomatoes spurred my tears because I was with my qualifier in North Carolina, where I've had some of the best tomatoes out of his grandmother's garden. Between the nostalgia and the share, the floodgates opened. The reason I decided to share is because of the discovery I made in this process. I've been so focused on my current qualifier and my ACA work, Adult Children of Alcoholics and Dysfunctional Families, mostly related to my mom and the many generational family members who were alcoholics that I had shoved aside the memory of this qualifier who had a significant impact on my late childhood and early adulthood. As the enabler that I am, I made it possible for him to get custody of his kids from a previous marriage, live a normal life with a house in a nice neighborhood, pets, and good schools. I made it possible for him to get a degree and a teaching credential Well, actually, I helped him with the divorce, too. I literally paid for it. And I did it all while he was actively drinking and cheating and spending milk money on beer. I covered for him to his family and his young kids. Looking back, it was probably obvious to everyone around us what was going on, but I insisted that we were a happy, although unmarried and thus uncommitted, family. I should mention that he was 15 years older than me, and I met him at the age of 15. I'll let you do the math. I now suspect that the only reason this situation was allowed to go on was because we were both mired in the disease of family dysfunction and addiction, and there was no one to recognize the problematic nature of this relationship. The lifeline for me came from a pen pal who would read my letters and notice how everything I wrote was about the kids or my qualifier. One day I was reading his response to one of my flowery letters telling about how happy the kids were. He simply wrote, But are you happy? At first, my denial kicked in and I thought, of course I'm happy. Why wouldn't I be? But I couldn't stop thinking about the question. That night, after I had gotten the kids to bed and was doing laundry and washing dishes while my qualifier was out bartending, I broke. No, I wasn't happy. My life had become one chore after another. I was gaining weight. The kids were becoming angry teenagers. I was isolated and I knew deep down that the rest of my life would be more of the same. I knew he wouldn't stop drinking. I knew he wouldn't hold up his end of the bargain of taking on household and financial responsibilities so I could get my degree. I suspected that his kids were likely to become addicts also. That one question from a friend who was removed from the situation ate at me until I had the courage to write back and say no, but that I didn't know how to get out of it. I don't really remember the details of how I made my plan. I just remember telling my qualifier that he needed to find a babysitter because I was giving my two weeks notice. I worked for a golf course in a gated community at the time and found a lockout, which is like a small room in a condo, that I could rent. The time I had previously spent with my qualifier's kids I used to pick up another job at the golf course so I could save some money. I was amazed to see how quickly my savings grew in the absence of an alcoholic. I applied to college, got accepted, found some roommates, rented a house together, and never looked back. Telling the kids I was leaving was the hardest part of this particular journey. The youngest was six, and I had been his mom since he was in diapers. He cried and cried every day for the two weeks I worked my notice. Every day I had to strengthen my resolve. I can only assume that my higher power was at work during that time. I had my own abandonment issues and unresolved childhood trauma. It would have been so easy for me to stay for the kids. I didn't have the phrase at the time, but now I think, there but for the grace of God, I go. When my dad left our family, it was like he vanished, no visitations, and therefore no reopening of wounds. I thought that would be best for my qualifier's kids too, especially because their absent alcoholic mother would randomly show up every four months or so and completely destroy them emotionally. I didn't want to be yet another person in their lives that caused them chronic emotional pain. I also didn't think I could handle the emotions myself, so I forced a clean break. It was awful. I probably cried for a year, and as you can tell, I'm still crying. Decades later, A couple of years later, after a particularly bad hurricane, my qualifier contacted me to see if I was okay and asked to see me. I thanked him for the concern and declined. Then one day not long after, he showed up at my workplace with all three boys in the car. I worked in construction so my job site was outside and easy to access. Before I realized it was him, I saw the boys and they saw me. I couldn't get out of saying hi. They didn't seem to recognize me and I didn't have anything to say. It was good in a way because it made me feel better about my decision to leave. I made it clear with my boss present that his visit was unwelcome, and that was the last time I can recall seeing him. In the last six months, I have discovered ACA through your podcast, actually. When I stumbled upon the show with Andrea and started listening to her podcast, Adult Child, she introduced me to the concept of complex trauma, and through her constant encouragement, led me to attending my first meeting. I have been working with a step group and living in a perpetual state of feeling my feelings. I know what a concept, which is why today the share about losing a qualifier hit me so hard. One of the many things your show has taught me is that ACA alone is not going to be enough for my recovery. I attended five Al-Anon meetings before the pandemic hit and then fumbled along until my life became unmanageable again in late 2020. I felt so isolated and didn't know where to turn. But I found your podcast and like many others used it as a lifeline in the middle of the night and in lieu of meetings. To any of your listeners who still do this, please, please find a meeting even if it is on Zoom in another country. Fellowship is so important in this journey and we are prone to isolating. Reach out, you will find love and acceptance. Every time I listen to your podcast, someone shares something I can relate to or a tool I can use in my own recovery. Inevitably, I find myself crying as I dig my way through the layers of unexpressed grief in ACA. It feels like those stuffed emotions have been earning interest. And just like with credit cards, the interest has been compounding. So now I feel like I have billions of dollars of emotional debt. For this reason, I really like the format of sharing experience, strength, and hope, especially hope. I rely on that to keep doing this hard work of recovery. I do wonder if I'm taking on too much and would like some perspective on doing ACA work and Al-Anon work together. I don't have enough hours in the week to attend both meetings, and I'm sure I only have the capacity to do the steps in one program at a time. For now, I am prioritizing ACA because it is the thing I can do that won't trigger my current qualifier, who thankfully is not drinking at the moment, and is open to ACA. However, I can't help but think that I will need to attend Al-Anon meetings eventually. Do you or the listening community have experience with doing both programs? What was the approach? Do I pick a qualifier and do the corresponding program with that person in mind? Do I do the steps for each qualifier? I should note that I've only completed step one in ACA, so I don't yet know what this looks like. I guess if I'm using program, I'll let it unfold. Well, as I sit with my own questions, the answer is clear. Although I have resisted 12-step programs in the past because of the spiritual nature, in Al-Anon, the phrase, let go and let God, has been instrumental in learning to detach with love. I'm actually excited to embark on step two this week and felt I have come to believe that a power greater than myself can restore me to sanity. I will finish here with a silver lining related to the loss of my qualifier. Several years before his passing, I had randomly come in contact with one of his sons. We were both commenting on a mutual friend's post. I hadn't seen him on Facebook before and was surprised when he reached out. We were both able to share our version of the past and develop a friendship. I apologized for leaving him and explained why. He accepted that and said he didn't blame me, but that he had always wondered why I left. Within a year, we were reunited in person when I had to travel back to North Carolina with my family for a memorial service. I got to meet his wife and two kids and one on the way. Little did we know that our eldest sons share the same birth date in the same year. He became a pastor, yet he was the one I worried the most about becoming an addict. Ironically, he is part of the reason I am more open to a relationship with a higher power because I have seen his faith in action His brothers, however, both struggle with alcoholism. At first, I wanted to reach out to them and help them. I mistakenly thought that if I could apologize to them, I could heal their pain. Again, my higher power was at work when I had not yet found recovery. I knew somewhere deep inside that nothing I could say would change their drinking. I couldn't change their father, and I can't save them. I didn't pursue it. I reminded myself that I had promised to let them come to me when they were ready. I'm grateful that they haven't come to me yet because I'm not ready. I need more time in recovery. Thanks to Al-Anon, ACA, and all the shares in those meetings and on this podcast, I can see that. This gives me great comfort and hope for the relationships I might have in the future with myself, with these boys, and with my own children as they become adults. Let's face it, my children will be ACAs and will likely need to attend Al-Anon. While I can't change the past, I can move forward in my recovery so that I can be there for them when they are ready to embark on their own journeys of recovery. So thank you to the person who shared so bravely about losing their qualifier. You unlocked all of this experience, strength, and hope in me. Thank you, Spencer, for creating this safe platform for this helpful exchange of ideas and emotions. To listeners, keep coming back. It works if you work it, and you're worth it. You get to be happy, too. Thank you.
0: Melanie, thank you so much for that heartfelt sharing of your experience, strength, and as you say, especially hope. You asked, do I or a listener have experience with doing both programs? I don't. But if you who are listening have experience with working both programs and in particular, how do you balance them? How do you decide what to prioritize? That might be helpful to Melanie, so let us know sending your thoughts. Thank you. Nancy wrote in response to the episode 385 worry less she says thank you for a really wonderful episode. I needed this right now I couldn't get there for quite a while. This habit of worrying and getting nothing back, not feeling better and really putting distance between myself and my loved ones only I can change my habits. I will share this with my support group. Well thank you, Nancy for writing. Cecily says, Hi, thank you for a show that has helped me a lot in my first year in al I left my qualifier and boyfriend a year ago, and I am now trying to pray for the first time in my life, being an atheist and still an atheist. And my qualifier always somehow ends up in the center of my prayer. I think it is because it helps me to leave his faith to the universe, my higher power, because I really need to leave it be somehow. I will try to make it a daily routine thank you for reading. Have a great day. Kind regards, Cecily. Thank you, Cecily. I think she was writing in response also to the Murray last episode. Robin says, I'm working on step two for the first time with my sponsor. I loved the episodes and thankful for all your links and that you've posted all of your past ones. I'm going from episode one until this one, number nine. It's been my lifeline when I can't get to a meeting or have to wait for a virtual one. It's wonderful while driving, waiting, falling asleep. I'm listening. Going through a tough time with my qualifier and podcasts are helping me keep my sanity and serenity. Thank you, Robin. I think she left that as a comment on episode nine. Jen writes, Hi, Spencer. I've been listening to your podcast for a couple months now, and I thought of some topics. Tonight, I know that I had too much to drink. I don't like this feeling. I can't imagine what an alcoholic feels when they get to this point. I was wondering if sharing how a non-alcoholic feels when they get drunk could be a topic for discussion. I was having a good time till that last drink hit. Now I can't walk straight, I'm slurring my words, I made sure that I ate food so I don't get sick, and I know that tomorrow is going to suck when I wake up. Is there a way to compare how a non-alcoholic deals with this versus how a recovering alcoholic felt at the same point? Was it the same process that I currently feel or does their disease Make them drink beyond this point and not think of the next day. Listener's feedback would be an invaluable experience from both sides of the coin. Thanks, Jen. Jen, I sometimes have the same feeling like, wow, I don't like this way I feel because I drank too much. How the heck could my loved one back in the day when she was still drinking, how the heck could she keep on drinking if she felt that way? And did she feel that way? And what I have come to understand from listening to the stories of lots of alcoholics is that, yeah, they can wake up feeling just absolutely horrible the next morning. But as the big book puts it, they have this allergy, this different response to alcohol that leads them right back there, a compulsion and a craving. So my suggestion, if you want to hear about it from the alcoholics perspective, is to listen to alcoholic oakman talks my friend john m has a podcast called sober speak in which almost every week is a a different alcoholic sharing their story and sometimes you hear about that kind of feeling and how they just went right back or they swore it off but then the next day they forgot or something anyway and i suspect that Non-alcoholics have a wide range of responses to drinking as well. Might be interesting to have a couple of people talk about that question. If you're up for having that conversation, I might be up for recording it. And by you, I don't mean Jen in this case. Thanks for writing and thanks for the question. Tova sent a voicemail.
5: Hi Eric, hi Spencer. I just finished re-listening to episode 379, Letting Go. And I just wanted to share some feedback about Shannon's story. Shannon's story—the first time I heard it—affected me very deeply. I do qualify for Al-Anon. it's not my primary qu- program. I'm actually primarily in Anon. Her whole story about her qualifier, alcoholic qualifier, engaging in infidelity when he was deep in his disease, and her waiting it out while they recover, really spoke to me at a time in my life that I needed it. I've been in Asinon now for, I think, about three years. And my qualifier has been in and out of recovery for around six. And even though he was pretty steady over the last couple of years, he indeed has relapsed twice. Actually, twice in the past 11 months. And uh, it's been really painful. You know, no one really speaks about infidelity as a symptom of disease. And even if when it comes to alcoholism, it's a byproduct of the disease, it's not necessarily the disease itself like you have when it comes to sexaholics. It was so validating to hear an experience of someone who understood that it was her qualifier's disease that caused him to act that way. Contemporary society tends to tell us that when we are being cheated on, we need to leave. It's a sign that they don't love us. But when someone's deep in their disease, they don't really know what they're doing. And it was just really validating to hear both the pain and to know that someone else was going through what I was going through as much as I would never wish this on anyone. But also to hear the hope and the compassion and that there's life afterwards and that you can recover. Thank you for letting me share.
0: Tova, thank you so much for sharing. Jane wrote, Hello, Spencer. I had been a regular listener of your wonderful podcast, but stopped listening about four years ago when I went through something and suddenly stopped going to Elanon meetings. Yesterday, having found myself facing alcohol issues and yet another close family member, and realizing I needed help, I went looking for your show. To my delight, I found the same green moth, the same intro music, the same familiar basic format, and the same host who seems to have gotten even wiser and more kind. <laughs> Thank you for that. I hope that's what's happening. It's good to have that validated. Back to Jane. The episode, Leaning into Faith, number 384, was so valuable to me. I just wanted to thank you from my heart for the time and effort you must put into this high quality show for so many years. Gratefully, Jane in Colorado. Well, Jane, I'm glad you're back and keep coming back because it works if you work it and you are worth it. And the last song that I picked for this topic is Everybody Hurts by REM. The message from this song that I'm taking away today is that we all experience pain and grief it's a common part of the human experience you're not alone even when you might feel like nobody else has felt like this in your life and that we can hang on and that we can recover so that at least it doesn't hurt quite so much thank you for listening and please keep coming back Whatever your problems, there are those among us who have had them too. May understanding, love, and peace grow in you one day at a time.